Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Good morning, Epiphany! Alleluia, Christ is risen, and it is a joy to be with you again. How you feeling this morning? A little tired? A little antsy? little case of the cabin fever got you feeling crazy well i do have some good news for you this morning and it's the same good news we have every morning jesus christ is risen from the dead so while you go stir crazy in the short term it is a deep and abiding comfort to know that long term everything is going to be okay part of the fun of the sunday service podcast style is that our podcast is reaching way out beyond the walls of the Mariah Chapel we normally use for worship. On today's podcast, you'll hear some unfamiliar voices that you won't see at our normal Sunday services. But believe it or not, they've been joining us digitally week to week during this pandemic. And they're friends and family of members of Epiphany. They're listening from all over. And it's a joy to have them join us as a part of our online services this week. So when they go back to meeting in person, they'll go back to their other churches, but for now, they're joining us. So if you don't recognize the voices this week, it's understandable. You'll be all right. Happy Sabbath Sunday to you all. You remain in my prayers. It's so good to see you at check-in groups throughout the week, and I hope to see each of you in person again very, very soon. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia, alleluia. Greetings, Epiphany Church. This is Brett Walker. Would you please join me in making this confession of sin to God corporately? Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us apart from thy grace. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou those, O God, who confess their faults. Restore thou those who are penitent. According to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. Good morning, Epiphany. This is Kathy Gerald, Brian's mom. We listen to the podcast together at our home in Richmond, Virginia. Our psalm today is a selection from Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, have I put my trust. Let me never be put to confusion. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Make haste to deliver me and be my strong rock and house of defense that you may save me. For you are my strong rock and my castle. Be also my guide and lead me for your name's sake. Draw me out of the net that they have laid secretly for me, for you are my strength. I am utterly forgotten as a dead man, out of mind. I have become like a broken vessel. 
For I have heard the whispering of the multitude, and fear is on every side, while they conspire together against me and take their counsel to take away my life. But my hope has been in you, O Lord. I have said, You are my God. My time is in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Show your servant the light of your countenance and save me for your mercy's sake. Let me not be confounded, O Lord, for I have called upon you. Let the ungodly be put to confusion and be put to silence in the grave. Let the lying lips be put to silence, which cruelly, disdainfully, and despitefully speak against the righteous. Oh, how plentiful is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, and which you have prepared for those who put their trust in you, even before the children of men. You hide them in the secret place of your presence from those who conspire against them. You keep them in your refuge from the strife of tongues. Good morning, Epiphany Church. This is Tyler Stefinski from Cleveland, Ohio. Our reading for today is the whole of Genesis chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, Well, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all of the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, 
I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all of the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reached out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Sometimes I dream that he is me. You've got to see that's how I dream to be. I dream, I move, I dream, I groove like Mike. If I could be like Mike, like Mike. That, of course, is the jingle associated with the 1991 Gatorade commercial featuring Michael Jordan smiling approvingly as those young children playing basketball around him imitated his moves and also enjoyed their own very thick glass bottles of 1990s Gatorade. And Michael Jordan is back in the public eye right now. ESPN is airing a documentary about the legendary basketball player. Some of you may be watching it during your quarantine, maybe not, but if you grew up in the 90s, MJ, Michael Jordan, was everywhere. He was literally basketball perfection. I mean, six championships in a row with the Chicago Bulls. And at this point, he's more ideal than man. It's like Muhammad Ali and Babe Ruth and Wayne Gretzky and Michael Jordan. Like That's it. Those four. That is the tier of talent we are talking about. And every child in the 90s knew they were witnessing something special. He had the shoes. He had the wins. And... So when Gatorade ran this commercial in 1991, um, well, the image sticks with you. Um, This jingle, I want to be like Mike, if I could be like Mike. In fact, they made a film in 2002 called Like Mike, and it starred the then-child rapper Little Bow Wow, um, who played an orphan. And the orphan found a pair of Michael Jordan's old Uh, basketball shoes, which, when worn, granted its wearer supernatural basketball powers. And all of a sudden, this 12-year-old could dunk. 
and it's innocent so far as it goes for grade school kiddos to want to be like Mike. We all want to be like and admire the heroes that we see doing spectacular things around us. But there's a dark side to this imitation ideal as well. You know, um, Michael Jordan has a gambling problem and a pretty serious one. He's had a failed marriage and he's really just not a nice guy. There's some things about Michael Jordan you actually don't want to be. And so we're going to actually take a look at the dark side of imitation in our reading this morning from Genesis chapter 3. Because it's one thing to want to be like Mike, to be a hardworking and successful uh, mega-athlete. But when we take that same desire and transfer it heavenward, when we want to be like God instead of like Mike, uh, the consequences of that desire are earth-shattering and shake the cosmos. And my hope today, as we review Genesis 3 together, my hope today is that we're going to make a slight but meaningful rhetorical shift. Um, This is a passage which catalogs what many have called the fall of man. The theologians and the scholars and anyone familiar with Western history, you know, anyone who's read Paradise Lost, it's the fall of man. And a fall sounds like someone tripped on the edge of an upturned carpet, right? Um, or, or a fall sounds like someone slipped down the stairs or, you know, someone, um, you know, twisted wrong in the shower and took a tumble. A fall sounds like an accident. And I hope by the time we're done today, you won't think of what happens in Genesis 3, Genesis 3 as an accident. I hope you'll see it more for what it truly is, which is a coup, a rebellion, an attempt to shift the order of the cosmos where the created overthrows, becomes equal to, and begins to contend with the creator. And so I hope you'll see that the shift in our reading today goes not just because, you know, some ancient primordial human beings took a bite of a forbidden fruit. Um, you'll hopefully see that by the end of our reading today, a pair of, uh, of hearts were darkened in opposition to the God who loved and created them. Indeed, the the fall of man may be better understood as the first rebellion, and it has explanatory power to genuinely shape how we understand the evils of our world. It is the great catastrophe of scripture that we are going to discuss today, the first domino and a long line of dominoes that has led to every bit of suffering and hardship in your life. And so it behooves us to understand this passage and its consequences, because it has a lot to say about the hardest things we are experiencing now and any day. So let's jump in. Uh, You'll remember that in the book of Genesis so far, God has created the world, and it was made very good. And he's created all of the topography and geography and biology that we know. And he's uh, created animals, and he's created the male sex. And it was confirmed that the male sex didn't have a suitable helper among the animals. And so God created a woman to be with the man. And he was so smitten by his new helper uh, that he composed the first ever love poem. And everything was great. Man, woman, animals, peace, garden, all you can eat, leisure, work that was satisfying and fulfilling. No death, no viruses. No telemarketers, no high school bullies, no cancer, 
no economic hardship, no record unemployment numbers. Uh, it was literally paradise, uh, the situation that God had created for Adam and Eve. And you'll remember there was but one single stipulation that God had given Adam when Adam was first placed in this garden paradise. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for you shall surely die. That was God's word to Adam in the last chapter. Eve has been created, and presumably she's in on this rule. Um, Adam communicates this stipulation to her. Perhaps God communicates it to her too. But she's aware of the rule, and everything is great until uh, the personification of Satan, the crafty and cunning snake, arrives on the scene. And Satan begins a conversation with Eve, and it goes like this. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the certain, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Notice that neither of these participants in the conversation, neither the woman nor the snake, actually quote God with any accuracy, right? The snake says, didn't God say you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? And that is profoundly not true. And then the woman says to the serpent, no, God only said that it's the one tree and we can't touch it or eat from it or else we'll die. And that's not true either because at the original statement that God gives, God says, just don't eat from it. You can touch the fruit. You can touch the tree. Just do not eat from it. And so at some point here, um, there's, there's a real disconnect that the word of God has been lost, whether it's been intentionally mishandled by the snake or just something's going on with Eve, we don't know. Um, but we should take notice of the fact that even from the very beginning of our reading, something is not right. The chapter continues, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here is where the story gets serious because the temptation placed before the woman and the proxy, you know, by proxy, the man too. This is the crux of our story today. The serpent's temptation is not, man, that fruit is just so good and you're missing out as if you know, they were ancient primordial foodies that were being tempted by a fruit they never had before, you know? It just tastes so much better than any other fruit in the garden. And the serpent's temptation is not, you know, I'm actually a greater good than the creator. In fact, you should switch bosses. You should switch sides. You should follow me because I am very good at creating things too. The serpent's temptation is you will be like God. In this case, right, being like God is knowing good and evil, um, but the heart of the temptation is to ascend to the levels of the divine, to usurp or at least become co-equal with that which is most powerful. Uh, two Sundays ago, you may remember, I broke down the creation myths of the Babylonian Empire, and in that creation myth, you may remember that Marduk, a created god, rises up and overthrows the 
up until now eternal god, Tiamat. And Marduk wins. And the temptation given to Eve in this story is to be like this Tiamat, uh, this Marduk figure. To have her eyes opened, to gain access to the divine, and transcend her role as a member of creation. John Calvin, the great Reformation theologian, articulated that the serpent might as well have tempted Eve by saying, God is afraid of having you as his colleague. Indeed, this is a very serious temptation to say, you will be like God, and that the God you currently serve is a liar, and he is lying to keep you oppressed and under his thumb. And you know the rest of the story. Eve, the woman, succumbs to this temptation. Uh, She takes the fruit and eats it and hands it to her husband, and he eats it too. And in doing so, these two creatures have symbolically declared their intent to overthrow their creator, to be in opposition to him. This was no accident to to do what the opposite of what God had said. This was, for, in all, for all intents and purposes, it is an act of treason. So when God comes to check in on them, their initial instinct is not to go greet him, to go continue on as if nothing has happened, Their initial instinct is to flee because they recognize they are naked, which means that shame has now entered the human experience. They were ashamed. And then they're wearing fig leaves and they try to pass the blame, which means that self-justification has entered the human experience. Hiding has entered the human experience. Fear has entered the human experience. The very good world that God has created, something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. There's a band called the the Hold Steady, and they wrote a rock song about a street preacher preaching about original sin, and it includes this uh, immortal lyric, which is just delightful. It, it goes like this. I guess I heard about original sin. I heard the dude blame the chick. I heard the chick blamed the snake. I heard they were naked when they got busted. I heard things ain't been the same since. Which is just a great and funny lyric, right? I heard they were naked when they got busted. Um, But the the real crux of that lyric is things ain't been the same since. And so once the blame is passed around, um, God starts outlining the consequence for this act of treason, this act of rebellion. He starts outlining the curses. Um, And we might suggest the curses have already arrived. It's not as if God is sort of saying... Oh, no, you guys, it's time for your punishments. But, you know, they're already experiencing the effects of the fall before God passes out these curses, given the fear and the hiding and the shame that they're already experiencing. And so God outlines these three curses. For Adam, his curse is linked to his work, to his vocation. The leisurely task of tending to the Garden of Paradise has been replaced with labor that is painful and difficult, and repetitive, and meaningless. And for Eve, the curse is twofold, that she shall be uh, in a deep labor pain of childbirth, and she will constantly be at enmity with her husband, that the, the, the deep and abiding affection that a husband and a wife had in the first marriage is gone, 
It has been shattered. And now she will constantly be at enmity with her husband. And then the snake, for the snake, the curse is that it becomes the lowest of all animals. And also it will be at enmity with humans forever. And knowing now that human beings have been awakened to the, the possibility of a divine coup, um, God makes a connection. He says, the garden still has this other tree. It's this tree of the fruit of eternal life. And uh, so we can't let humans have this tree um, because if they do, then we're in real trouble because they will have knowledge of good and evil and they will also have eternal life. And so God kicks them out of the garden. They are removed from eternal life and God's promise has come true as a result. Those that eat of the tree will surely die. And that's exactly what God said a chapter earlier, and that is what is happening now, that as Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, um, God says that they will be at enmity with each other, they will find zero satisfaction in their work and in their toil, and they have now been cursed with death. As Christians, we follow the lead of St. Paul, who will later write that through Adam, sin entered the world. And sin, FYI, it has its roots in an archery term, and it means missing the mark. And so imagine you have a bow and arrow, and you pull back the, the bow, and you release the arrow, and it goes, whoop, and it misses the target. I mean, it just completely misses the target, or it hits so far off, you're not even in one of those rings around the target. You're like in the white space around the target. And that's the biblical vision of sin, is that when the world and its inhabitants miss the mark of God's intention, um, we call that sin. And St. Paul says through this event, specifically through Adam, which is interesting because St. Paul does not say this happened through Eve, it happened through Adam. Because this original coup of this original coup in the heavens, um, we find that we are all missing the mark. Um, we are all missing a life defined by God's will for this world. And we all pay the price for dismissing God's vision of how this world is supposed to be. Th through Adam's story, we discover that the root of all of the world's sin, your sin, my sin, their sins too, whoever they are, the root of all of it, according to Genesis chapter three, is the desire to be God. The desire to be like God. According to Genesis 3, that is the root of all sin. It was truly the original sin. And the desire to be like God is the fundamental way that we miss the mark of God's intention for the world. So let's run through some of the Ten Commandments and, and break this down. Why is it a sin to steal? Because we think in those moments that the world's property is perhaps due us. And that our wants and desires are the only things that matter in the world. Is that why we steal? Perhaps. And if God exists, all the world's property is his, for he fashioned and made it all. And so when we steal, we are usurping ourselves and trying to exalt ourselves as our own little gods. Why is it a sin to murder? Because maybe we like being the arbiters of right and wrong and defining what that is. Because we enjoy the power of taking a life away because that's a similar power that we would enjoy if we were able to create life. But if God exists, he is the arbiter of right and wrong. And he is the one who gives life. And he is the one who can take it away too.
Why is it a sin to break the Sabbath? Because we're trying to outwork God. Why is it a sin to have idols? Because an idol supposedly has power to control the world around us. So when we have control over the idol, we are controlling the world around us like God is supposed to be in control. Why is it a sin to not honor our parents? Because when we don't honor our parents, we are ignoring the fact that we had a beginning and an origin and God has no parents. God is eternal. And we are trying to be godlike when we forget our humble, infant, childlike origins. And so we honor our parents because we acknowledge our frailty and creatureness. Adam and Eve could have done any of these sins, any of the Ten Commandments, whichever one it would have been, and the result would have been the same. Eve and Adam were attempting to be gods in a cosmos that already had a perfectly good one. Thank you very much. And when we miss the mark in living a life in accordance to God's moral vision, we should not think of it as a fall, as if it were some sort of whoopsie-daisy accident. We should think of it as yet another attempted coup. Now, the name of this series is The Gospel According to Genesis. And some of you may be wondering why we are reading a passage that has zero good news, isn't it? After all, if you've been given birth to a child, epidural or not, you know the pangs of childbirth. After all, if you've ever worked a job, any job for that matter, you are aware of how poor our vocations are as a mechanism to fulfill our deepest needs. No matter what the job is, all of our vocations are marked by toil. Where might we find good news in this passage that outlines and diagnoses everything wrong with the world and exposes every individual human being as someone with the desire to play and be a god. Three glimmers of hope and then we will conclude. First, notice that there's a delay in Adam naming Eve. I've been a little anachronistic calling Eve by her name these past two weeks here because Adam only begins to call his wife Eve after the fall. And Eve is, is a name is a pun of sorts. In Hebrew, it sounds like the word for a life giver and living. And although death has now entered the world, Adam insists on giving Eve a name that means life, calling her life giver. Is he being cruel? Is he being ironic? That's the first thing we should notice is that Adam gives Eve a name that means life giver in a world which is marked by death. Second, notice that God does something for Adam and Eve about their nakedness. Even though he is kicking them out of the garden, the text tells us that God provides for Adam and Eve animal skins to wear so that they can hide their naked bodies and not be ashamed. And insofar as Genesis shares with us, um, these are the first two uh, or however many animals these are the first animals to die in the animal kingdom of Genesis, as far as we know. They are killed to provide a covering for the, the Adam and Eve, right? They are killed to provide a covering for the first humans to hide their shame. Perhaps God is foreshadowing animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, or maybe God is simply preparing the duo for a harsh life outside of paradise. Third and final um, thing to note is that the, the sharpest ears in our reading today and the sharpest ears listening to the sermon will notice that I have glossed over a part of the curse of the snake. Here's that part of the curse against the snake. Um, God says this, I will put 
enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You can't tell in the English, but the word for offspring, right? We don't have a word for offsprings. We just have the one word. The word offspring in this reading is singular. It would not be wholly incorrect to say something like this. I will put enmity between your child and her child or your descendant and her descendant, right? Singular, just, just one of them. And at the end of the day, the text tells us that the descendant of the woman will ultimately defeat the snake and his offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Uh, it's remarkable because almost one year ago, we began that big, long sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. And one of the remarkable things about Luke's Gospel is that he provides a genealogy that goes all the way back to the very beginning. You can go to Luke chapter 3 and look through it. And if you follow Luke's uh, genealogy, it goes all the way back to share that Jesus is the son of Adam, the son of God. These glimpses of redemption in Genesis, the church has seen them since the very beginning as foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus. They have seen Jesus in the book of Genesis since the very beginning. When Eve is gifted with a name that means life giver, it's because she is the mother of all life. And we see that she is like a, a very early Mary, someone uh, through whom life will come into the world. Through childbirth, right? Through her matriarchy, but ultimately through her descendant Jesus' death and resurrection, life will enter the world. She will be the life giver because she will give us, a long time down the road, Jesus Christ. How will Jesus save the world? He is the sacrifice that covers our guilt and our shame, just like the animal skins that hid Adam and Eve's shame. In the same way that blood was spilled to restore the first couple to a place where their shame and their failure did not bring about hiding and death, the blood of Jesus Christ was spilled that we might have our sins covered and our shame removed as well. And when the final battle comes together at the end of all time, Eve's descendant is victorious over the snake. Although, of course, Eve's descendant is grievously wounded in the process. He is bruised in the heel, but he is also resurrected from the dead. Satan, however, is bruised. He is crushed in the head. In our Genesis 3 reading, friends, we understand the curse, right? The curse is that we will find no happiness or satisfaction or purely good thing this side of paradise. Suffering is the norm. Neighborly love is not a guarantee. As the philosopher Thomas Hobbes famously quipped, the events of Genesis 3 have given us a life that is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. But built into the proclamation of the curse, we find an undercurrent of hope. What the first Christians called the Proto-Evangelion. The first good news. And that's not an exaggeration to say the first Christians believed this. Writers like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus in the second century, like the year like 150 AD, right? They were saying things like, this is absolutely about Jesus. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Three chapters into the good book and Jesus' death and resurrection is already being foreshadowed. The curse is given. 
and rightfully so, for human beings are responsible for reprehensible damage to the cosmos. But even in the delivery of the curse, we find hints of God's will to eventually reverse that curse. So what else changes, friends? What else changes? From now on, you'll see the Bible becomes instantly relatable. Um, For anyone who has seen the universe and said, wait a minute, why would God create this universe and call it good? And for anyone who thinks to themselves, I can't believe a good God would make a world like this. And for anyone who thinks this world isn't all it's cracked up to be, you're right. The world we live in now is a paltry and insufficient comparison to the very good world that God had intended. But the gift of the Christian gospel, my friends, is that the final word has yet to be spoken. Through the blood that covers, through the giver of life, through the sun that bruises the serpent, this world will one day, once again, be made very good. No more viruses, no more anger, no more isolation, no more tears, no more hunger, no more thirst, no more shame. My brothers and sisters, this is the gospel according to Genesis chapter 3. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, Epiphany. This is Thomas Gerald, baby Tom's grandfather. Would you join me in saying together the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now, as our Savior taught us, we are bold to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Good morning, friends. This is Catherine Stefinski. Would you please pray with me? O God, our King, by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the first day of the week, you conquered sin, put death to flight, and gave us the hope of everlasting life. Redeem all our days by this victory. Forgive our sins, banish our fears, make us bold to praise you and to do your will, and steal us as we wait for the consummation of your kingdom on the last great day. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We also remember those on Epiphany's prayer list. Jill Ann Palmer, Ligonier Camping Conference, Pine Springs Camp, Valley Youth Network, Bob Broadbent's friend Mike, Gail Broadbent's friend Jane, Vicki Mull's friend Jenna, Marilyn Couch's daughter Heather, Marjorie Moyer's sister Susan, and those among us who have asked for anonymous prayer.
We remember also the prayer requests shared at our check-in groups this week. Almighty God, we entrust all who are dear to us, especially those on our church prayer list, to your never-failing care and love for this life and the life to come, knowing that you are doing for them better things than we can desire or pray for. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Here is a prayer for those who serve. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, whose blessed Son came not to be served, but to serve, we ask that you bless all who, following in his steps, give themselves to the service of others, especially the doctors, nurses, hospitals, and first responders working on the front lines of the virus outbreak. Endue them with wisdom, patience, and courage, that they may strengthen the weak and rise up those who fall. And, being inspired by your love, may worthily minister to the suffering, the friendless, and the needy, for the sake of him who laid down his life for us, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Here is a prayer for mission. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross, that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen. Almighty God, you have given us grace at this time with one accord to make our common supplications to you, and you have promised through your well-beloved Son that when two or three are gathered together in his name, you will grant their requests. Fulfill now, O Lord, our desires and petitions, as may be best for us, granting us in this world knowledge of your truth, and in the age to come, life everlasting. Amen. Here's a few announcements this week for the good of the church before we end our time together. As we announced last week, Pizza Night has returned. Join us online on Friday, May 16th as we gather together for pizza and digital connection. All the information for this week's Pizza Night will be available in your church emails. And please note, we do need to get our Pizza Night orders in tomorrow morning. So if you are joining us for Pizza Night, please, P-L-E-A-S-E, please, Get those orders in online today. Use the order form that's available in your church email. Check-in groups continue this week. Keep an eye on your emails for the Zoom call login information. We'll have another episode of the Philippians devotional dropping this week too. And uh, one last note before we close. Many of you are aware that Westmoreland County will be given the yellow light status by the state of Pennsylvania later this week, perhaps even this Friday. What does that mean for Epiphany? I have no idea, (laughs) but I imagine that our own Bishop Hobby will be in touch with more information about how this is going to impact churches in the diocese as soon as he knows anything. So yet another reason to keep in touch through your church emails this week. And so now as we close our time together, hear this blessing. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you now and remain with you always. Amen. Amen.
Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Good morning, Epiphany Church. This is Tyler Stefinski coming to you live from my bathroom. Now, this morning we're going to hear from Genesis chapter 3. We're going to hear about a serpent that tricks a lady who tricks her husband, who then disobeys God and some very bad, bad things happen. It's going to get wild. But before all that, the weather. Today in Cleveland, you can expect cloud, clouds, clouds, and more clouds over the city. The lake is probably dangerous and you don't want to get in it because you might get a weird rash. Other than that, things are great here. Back to you. All right, here we go with that reading of the scripture of God's holy, holy word. 